Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Lebanon is in the midst of an economic freefall, the degree to which is jaw-dropping. Inflation is out of control, commodities are hard to come by, and its currency is devaluing at a rapid clip. And this was all happening months before the coronavirus pandemic. Now, in the midst of the pandemic, a deteriorating economic situation is poised to turn into a major political and social crisis. This is arguably the worst crisis since Lebanon emerged from a 15-year civil war in 1990. A few days before I recorded this interview, the government of Lebanon signaled that it would seek a bailout from the International Monetary Fund. But IMF loans come with conditions, and as my guest today, Maha Yahya, explains, it is entirely unclear right now whether or not the government would be able to accept the kinds of conditions required for an IMF bailout. Maha Yahya is the director of the Carnegie Middle East Center, and I caught up with her from Beirut. We kick off discussing the roots of the economic crisis, which she explains can be traced to the political arrangements that ended the civil war 30 years ago. We then have a broad conversation about the impact this economic crisis is having in a country that was already fragile. Lebanon's economic freefall is one of those key global stories that is largely being drowned out by the COVID-19 pandemic, and Maha Yahya does an excellent job explaining this economic crisis and its attendant political impact. And before we started, I just wanted to check in with everyone, make sure you guys are doing okay out there where I am. Our stay-at-home order is about to be lifted and kind of the phase two safer at home looks uh, still a little unclear. Everything is obviously still unclear and uncertain, um, but that seems to be the defining feature of this kind of moment in history. If there's anything you want to share with me, feel free to reach out. Anything on your mind, you can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I do love hearing from you. I will read all your emails. I will get back to them. It might take me a little bit, but I, I do appreciate your thoughts. And the bonus episode that I've posted this week for premium subscribers to the podcast is my conversation with CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. She tells me her life story, how she got into reporting, and that includes a key moment during the Lebanese Civil War, which she covered as a young reporter. That episode and dozens of my conversations with people who have had interesting careers in foreign policy and world affairs are available to premium subscribers. To become a premium subscriber, go to patreon.com slash global dispatches or follow the links on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Other rewards for premium subscribers include access to my daily global news clip service and I'll mail you a sticker among other things. 
Thank you. Now here is my conversation with Maha Yahya of the Carnegie Middle East Center. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The WhatsApp, the proposed WhatsApp tax was really a, uh, just, as they say, the, the, the hair that broke the camel's back. Um, there had been quite a bit of frustration building up. Uh, for the past uh, few months, even few years, with the general de- deterioration in the provision of services and the political and economic management of the country, things were just getting much worse. If you call in 2015, there was a massive garbage crisis, which went on for months where garbage was literally collecting on the streets of the capital, Beirut, but also across the country. No one was collecting the garbage because the uh, contracts had ended. They hadn't been renewed. Um, There was uh, a... basically a political deadlock over the renewal of the contract. That was, I mean, on the surface, it was over the renewal of the contract. In reality, it was about how do you divvy up the pie between uh, Lebanon's political elite. Let me backtrack here for a second, just to explain the setup in Lebanon. Lebanon is governed by a group of political elites, Most of them are the heads of the militias who took part in Lebanon's civil conflicts between 1975 and 1990. The civil war ended with a kind of no victor, no vanquished mentality. It was a particular moment in the regional history, if you like. Um, The first Gulf War was about to be launched. There was a meeting in Saudi Arabia and Ta'if, uh, where the regional powers, it was brokered by Saudi Arabia, but with American blessings, Syrian involvement, Iranian involvement. The idea was that the war was ended, uh, again, with a no victor, no vanquished mentality. And all the militia heads were moved from, literally became the, uh, moved into the state apparatus. And They occupied major positions, uh, either as ministers, prime ministers, etc. Well, not prime ministers, but as ministers mainly. Um, Also, at the same time, an amnesty law was passed, which meant that nobody would be held accountable for any crimes committed during the 15-year civil war. Fast forward uh, to 2020. We're still living with the same militia heads. Uh, The transition from the street to state institutions meant that these people took their conflicts from the state, from the street to state institutions. Rather than build up state institutions after the civil war, 
many of them treated state institutions as a kind of war bounty. So um, they, you know, they were, if you even listen to, for example, to some of the debates around cabinet formations, it would always be about who has a right to which ministry. It was never around um, what programs they had. Um, the discussion would always be around, I want this particular ministry because there's a lot of, there are lots of contracts that go through because I can provide a lot of services through it. So, for example, the Ministry of uh, Electricity was always a lucrative ministry, quote unquote. The Ministry of Public Works was also considered a lucrative ministry, etc. Yeah, so, so basically, you have this system set up in which the former militia heads become the political insiders, uh, and their parties are, you know, apportioned various cabinet posts and various parts of of the government. And needless to say, that is not a formula for a well functioning government that provides services to its citizens. Um, but that's been the case, obviously, since you know 1992 or 1990, when 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 the conflict ended. Um, why in October did these uh, protests reach such a fever pitch and lead to the resignation of the the previous government of Sayyid Hariri? Things don't happen overnight. Uh, over the past, initially, it was, you know, money was flowing in, there was reconstruction, people were very hopeful. Uh, I remember all the images in 1992, with, 1990, sorry, with people crossing over the Green Line. There was a sense of euphoria that the civil war had ended, and now was the time to rebuild the country. So you had a lot of expatriates coming from, from, from around the world, coming back to participate in rebuilding Lebanon. What has happened over this period is that many of the military militia heads, um, I mean, Lebanon is governed by a sectarian power sharing system, which allowed these people to stay in place, but also allowed them to create a crony, cronyistic, nepotistic uh, system uh, of associates who were placed within government institutions. Um, they, you know, when they gave out uh, government contracts to their business cronies, etc. So long as that machine was functioning and there was plenty of money to go around for everyone, it was fine. People went ahead and went along. And, you know, it, it just it built up. What has happened since uh, 2015 is that a, a state institution coffers started drying up. Uh, the amount of resources that you could subdivide amongst these people was shrinking. Um, and increasingly, we were seeing more and more political deadlock. If you recall at the time, for example, there were two years where Lebanon was without a president because they could not agree on a president. Now, part of this deadlock is internal, but a big part of it also is because there is a polarization between Saudi Arabia and Iran. You have... Uh, Lebanon's political uh, parties are affiliated with either Saudi Arabia or Iran. Um, the polarization at the regional level has had a direct impact on Lebanon. This also is coupled with a, you know, an ongoing conflict in Syria uh, that has also taxed Lebanon financially, both in terms of um, money being transferred from Lebanon to Syria, but also with the arrival of 
close to a million refugees in Lebanon, um, which for Lebanon um, has been a heavy burden. Lebanon only has a population of about 5 million, and there's probably at least a million refugees that are living in Lebanon uh, from the Syrian civil war. So this is a huge proportion of the population. Exactly. Actually, Lebanon's population is 4.2 million. Um, and it already has hosts around 250,000 Palestinian refugees who have been here since 1948 and 1967, respectively. So there is a legacy of Lebanon hosting refugees initially on a temporary basis, but then they end up being here permanently. So for Lebanese, this became, a, or for many Lebanese, this became a kind of a flashpoint. Unfortunately, it also translated, as it did in many parts of Europe, into a lot of populism. Uh, I mean, there was a backlash against the refugees uh, in, in, in many ways. I won't go into the details of that in particular. But yes, of course, there was a burden on Lebanon uh, in, in terms of uh, you know, spending, infrastructure, etc. So all of these factors have been feeding off each other. Let's put a let's put it this way: there is a decrease in the in the financial resources, a regional context that is increasingly more and more troubled, uh, polar and more polarized, an ongoing conflict right next door, and a political party in Lebanon that is involved in the Syrian conflict, uh, Hezbollah, that is involved in the Syrian conflict. So. There's been a lot of pressure on Lebanon financially uh, since 2015, uh, more or less, uh, or maybe more 2017. Gulf support, financial support for Lebanon has also decreased or even practically come to a stop. So the economic pressure, coupled with growing dissatisfaction with the way, you know, the political management of the country, the sense that this political elite is uh, looking out for themselves. So while they're polarized and unable to agree on anything when it comes to uh, you know, foreign policy in Lebanon, for example, um, they have no vision for where to take the country. Uh, and yet we hear about business deals being done by you know, different members of, this, uh, of these groups. So people who are supposed to be enemies uh, <laughs> politically are actually conducting business together. So the perceptions of corruption, the sense that it's uh, there's more and more corruption, uh, and uh, you know they're getting richer while the quality of life for ordinary Lebanese was deteriorating very quickly. So, and is it fair to say though that that you know the Lebanese government and Lebanese you know elites responded to this? basically cash flow crisis by borrowing more and more money and now they're unable to kind of pay the debts on those well yes yes and no i mean yes the lebanese state was borrowing more and more money uh, i mean if we want to come to the economic crisis to just kind of summarize the crisis itself the lebanese were putting their money in in banks banks were actually giving crazy interest rates on dollar deposits. They were taking these dollars and it was a way to attract funding, uh, you know, uh, a cash flow into the country. Uh, so a lot of Lebanese, for example, who live in the US or in Africa or around the world, literally, were sending in their money here because they were earning very high interest rates. We're talking about interest rates that went up to almost 15% in some, Which is depending on 
crazy Sorry? considering how, which is just crazy considering how low interest rates are elsewhere around the world. No, no, it was so madness. Had, it was yeah. Madness. So Lebanese diaspora were parking their money in Lebanese banks in order to you know gain that high interest. It, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if you if you put a uh, if if you're getting I don't know six percent to eight percent, if you put anywhere around a hundred thousand, let's say dollars. Um, the, the more money you put, the greater the interest rate. So some people were earning up to 15% interest rate by the end on their dollar deposits. Um, it was a way to kind of attract money here. Um, the banks were placing this money with the central bank. And then the central bank uh, was using this money as and loaning it to the government, uh, to the Lebanese state, to state institutions to spend on you know, for primary to spend on services, on uh, buying fuel, etc., uh, for the electricity, uh, wage bills, uh, so on and so forth. So basically, the state was a bad client, and yet the central bank continued lending this money. Meanwhile, uh, they also did this crazy Ponzi scheme. I won't go into the details of that, which also aggravated things uh, even more. Bottom line and is, it, this was a crisis waiting to happen. I'm kind of curious to learn, you know, as someone who's living in Beirut, how is this economic crisis affecting you? I mean, it's affecting me in the same way as everyone else. Um, since October, we've had no access. I can't withdraw. Uh, I cannot transfer money uh, from Lebanon abroad. Uh my pension has gone down the drain, literally. Uh, so most people's pensions have literally evaporated, particularly with the exchange rate. The pension fund itself is in a lot of trouble. Um, and it's very opaque in terms of, anyway, I won't go into that. But so in terms of personal effect, pensions are gone uh, or the value of the pension has literally disappeared, uh, particularly because the exchange rate has shot up, and we can talk a bit about the exchange rate. Lebanon's uh, exchange rate has been, Lebanese pound has been pegged to the dollar since the 1990s, and it's been at a steady 1,500, 1,500 Lebanese liras to a dollar, um, which in time became completely overvalued. Uh, today, the exchange rate on the black market has gone up to 4,000 almost. Um, it, it keeps going up and down, but it's in the limit of 4,000 4, pounds uh, to the dollar. Um, so the value of my pension, which is in Lebanese lira, is gone. Uh, and thousands of civil servants, and someone who worked in public service for 40 years, uh, as, a, as a teacher, for example, in, in, in public schools as a teacher, her entire pension is gone now. Um, we can't transfer money out of the country. We can't access our dollar accounts. I, as of today, we cannot even withdraw any dollars from our accounts, even if they're dollar accounts. Um, and if you do withdraw them in Lebanese liras, they're being withdrawn at the official rate of 1500 whereas outside the bank, it's at 4000 Um They've just now put out a circular saying they'll start allowing people to convert a small amount of their money. So I think 500 to 1,000, depending on how much money you have in the bank, uh, of uh, your dollar deposit at the rate of 3,000. So there's now an acceptance that, the, you know, the, the, there is a 50% increase in the exchange rate. 
So if you are adding this massive economic crisis to an already fragile and fractious political system, presumably this has to be really destabilizing right now. It's incredibly destabilizing, particularly because it's not just about the exchange rates. It's not just, I mean, we're in the midst of an inflation. The price of basic goods has shot up. If you look at things like sugar, uh, it's, I think there's a 67% increase in the price of sugar. The price of rice, uh, flour, uh, pasta, uh, salt. I mean, these are really basic goods. The prices have either either uh, doubled, tripled. Uh, I mean, depending on 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 what good we're talking about. Um, we're in the midst. I mean, there is an inflation and a recession. The the uh, already in October, once the protest started and the banks closed, what they did, the what the banks did at the time, they shut down for three weeks. During this period, we could not transfer any money out of the country. And once they reopened, what they did was they stopped or they froze and then stopped lines of credit. Lines of credit are usually given to businesses uh, so that they're able to purchase uh, stuff from abroad and import them. Lebanon, almost 80% of what is consumed in Lebanon is imported. So the moment they stopped the lines of credit, the economy came almost to a sudden stop. Uh, people can't import things anymore. And they've been trying to find ways around trying to import stuff. The result is that today, and then you add to that the pandemic and the lockdown measures associated with the pandemic. Yeah, well, uh, that's actually what I wanted to ask you. Like, How yeah. on top of all of this um, economic freefall is the pandemic, is COVID-19 layering on top of it? It's it's complete. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, what can I say? We already were in a situation of economic stop between October and December. Um, it was estimated that around two hundred and twenty thousand people lost their jobs. This is a huge number for Lebanon. The labor force is around one point two million, I think. That's a huge number for Lebanon. Our sense is that it's probably even more acute amongst the younger generation, fresh graduates. What kind of job are they going to find today? You add to that a lockdown, which meant that a lot of businesses were forcibly closed and bankruptcies are shooting through the roof. Um, Lebanon relies on tourism, for example, the tourism sector. All business, all hot, I mean, hotels are closing down. Uh, restaurants are closing down. Uh, anything associated with the tourist industry has been shut down for quite some time. Actually, not too long ago, one of the oldest hotels in, in Beirut, the Bristol Hotel, which was an, it's an icon for many people, it's remained open throughout the entire civil war, just announced that they're closing, they're shutting down, they can't afford it anymore. And they had just renovated, finished renovating it two years ago. So this gives you a sense of how dire the situation is. Um, people, so, uh, many people are on half salaries. Presumably it was because of this incredibly dire situation that the government very recently agreed to seek a loan from the IMF, um, which is interesting to me for, for a, a few reasons. I, I guess first was like the role of Hezbollah in the government. And Hezbollah, I think, you know, I'd seen had traditionally or had very recently um, tried to block uh, the government from seeking an IMF loan. But ever since Iran itself sought an IMF loan, the Hezbollah in, in Lebanon sought to um, decrease its opposition to an IMF loan. And now you have this kind of 
potential for a loan hanging out there. Um, what can you tell me about the sort of the politics of, of this loan? Um, look, Lebanon had no option. In fact, we've been, you know, there was no option but to go to the IMF. The country needs an immediate injection of cash. We're talking about 10 to $20 billion. Actually, the according as per the government's own uh, economic plan, they're saying there are $83 billion, billion, not million, billion dollars of losses in the banking sector. So, Lebanon needs an immediate injection of cash in the range of 10 to 15 or to 20 billion immediately, uh, both in terms of budgetary support, uh, but also to be able to get uh, some, you know, to import basic goods, fuel, flour, things like this, medicines now with the corona. Um, while there are some reserves in the central bank, they are not sufficient. So, Lebanon had no option from day one but to go to the IMF. The reason being is the IMF is the fastest dispersing instrument in terms of money. They're the one international organization that the moment they approve your plan, uh, they can literally give you money. Uh, it takes usually three to six months. This is coming at a time when any funding that one would have hoped for from former friends of Lebanon, and I say former because they really have not, I mean, funding, for example, Gulf countries, um, they've stopped funding Lebanon for some time now, partly because of the rule of Hezbollah. So bottom line, IMF was not an option. It, it, it was, sorry, IMF was the only option available to Lebanon. When it comes to Hezbollah, they haven't been happy about it initially, but I don't think they're the only ones, to be fair. I think IMF, the Hezbollah is very worried about the kind of conditionalities that may be imposed uh, by the Americans via the IMF on Lebanon. But the bottom line is none of the political elite are happy with an IMF deal because the IMF will only approve a deal where there is political consensus on some serious fiscal reform. This means shutting down a lot of the uh, defunct institutions, for example, that have been around since the end of the Civil War and that are still being used to siphon off state funding. Uh, it means dealing with the electricity, the, the, the problem with the electricity. Uh, th there's such an enormous amount of corruption and waste in that sector. It's mind-boggling, and dealing with it is, is one of the first things that will be on the agenda. Well, well can, I, can I ask that? I mean, if the government of Lebanon is, is so weak right now, as you describe, how is it even possible that they would be able to implement the conditions that the IMF would require for a loan, conditions that necessarily require, you know, the apportioning of, of losers of, as you said, kind of cutting off those defunct ministries? Well, it's not ministries, but it's rather institutions. Quite honestly, this is, this is why I'm not, uh, I mean, there are a there are serious trade-offs, policy trade-offs that need to we that the you know the government is and the political parties are going to have to look at. But more importantly, if there is no political consensus to go along with uh, doing the kind of fiscal reform that is needed, the IMF is not going to come through. If the IMF comes through and the plan is approved, this would presumably also unlock funding from the EU, from the Americas, maybe perhaps from the Gulf. So, again, going back to why the IMF is important and was the only option is none of the international donors will give Lebanon money and support it unless there is a stamp of approval from the IMF. So 
it is a bitter swill, a bitter pill that the Lebanon's political parties are going to have to swallow. Um, I don't see them there yet, to be honest with you. In, I really just don't see them there yet. I think from what I've been saying, um, there seems to be almost a cognitive dissonance uh, amongst a lot of the political leadership. They recognize the severity of the economic situation. Political parties are preparing for the worst case scenario. We've seen what Hezbollah and the other political parties have done for the corona pandemic, setting up tents, setting up uh, uh, isolation centers, etc., um, even prior to Corona, many of these political parties had started preparing in terms of stocking up on food. They're actually worried and they know that people are starting to go hungry. This isn't the theory anymore. People are starting to go hungry. Uh, today, the World Bank was estimating that if the Lebanese exchange rate reaches 2,500 liras, uh, 45%, that's close to 1.6 million people would go hung- would be poor in Lebanon. Um, today we're at 4,000. So the percentage of poor is, uh, well, actually the middle class is becoming, uh, is becoming great, more and more impoverished. Um, so, and there's no real funding. I mean, you need funding even to set up a social protection system. So what will it take then for the ruling elite to, you know, swallow that, that bitter pill and actually take the, you know, take the loan? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I think we're going to have to wait and see once the negotiations start. The bottom line is what I was trying to say is that there seems to be a cognitive dissonance within, amongst, within in the minds of many of these uh, political leaders. They recognize the severity of the economic situation, but they have yet to uh, adjust their political behavior to, to be in line with that severity of the economic situation. They say the same thing and it's opposite within the same sentence. So bottom line is, um, I mean, I've been calling in a lot of the things I've been writing about, which is that they need to kind of agree. Uh, there has to be a consensus that we've got to work with this, uh, with the IMF. We have to swallow the bitter pill and accept that there are fiscal reforms that need to be done. Um, and quite honestly, I think they need to call for early elections as well. It's not just an economic crisis. There's a genuine uh, crisis of political legitimacy today as well. Too many people, this, these parties do not are not representative anymore. Thank you so much for your time. A pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Maha. That was really really helpful very interesting you know this is one of those stories as I said at the outset that would be higher up in headlines if not for this worldwide pandemic uh, but it's absolutely fascinating and obviously what happens in Lebanon is of great matter internationally so I was glad to bring this conversation to you thank you I will see you next time bye